Hello and good morning again. Uh, I'm so glad I volunteered for that dance video uh, up front just to really leverage my gifts for the church. Um, hard to stay humble sometimes. Anyways, um, welcome. It is so good to see you guys in church. Justin, one of the pastors here. Um, I want to talk to you about termites. Each year, termites cost society billions of dollars by damaging homes, businesses, and other buildings that have wood and organic material in them. Interesting thing about termites, though, is their costly impact is usually only noticed after seasons of extended activity. Their real threat is found in their subtlety. I mean, think about it. If you have a family of wild raccoons living above your head, you tend to notice that. Those midnight fights, right? Um, but termites are silent. They don't really have much of an odor. They work slowly. They just take out little bites. Slowly, one at a time. But here's the thing. When they begin to bite, they begin to feed. When they begin to feed, they begin to multiply. And as the few become many, the summing effect becomes significant. Because they're sneaky, right? I mean, they're, they're not out in the open. They're in the floorboards, right? They, they are in the beams. Uh, they're inside the walls. They're at places that are vital to the integrity of the structure, um, but usually they're not noticed for a long time. One source I was looking at online said that a colony can go up to three years before it's noticed, and then the outcome is that rot accelerates, the, the, the value of the building decreases, and the integrity of the structure could be lost. At, and if the process goes on undetected, then unchecked, it can lead to irreparable collapse. This morning, we are continuing uh, in a series called Onward We Stumble. Uh, this comes out of our mission statement that says, we invite everyone to know and to enjoy Jesus as we stumble together, we are mindful of how we're walking a path with God and with one another. The series, we're looking at things that kind of eat away at the church's ability to stand strong together. After all, uh, Peter describes us as being God's household, right? Uh, things that would erode our witness, impact us as we're following Jesus, and diminish our ability to be a stable community. So today's topic is actually not sponsored by Terminex.com or any other pest control uh, company. That, that was in the business what they call an illustration. Um, but it's going to help us consider another bug, another investation that is undoubtedly in churches. It is surely addressed by the Bible, but though it causes rot and it hurts the stability of the building... Um, it's something that often goes by unnoticed and undetected, right? Because it's, it's not extreme. It's not the loud, stinky raccoons fighting in the early hours of the night. Today, we're going to explore the topic of grumbling. Grumbling. When you hear the word grumble, what does that mean? What does that bring to mind? What is at stake when we talk about grumbling? Maybe another way to engage this topic would be through this question. Whose responsibility is it to have the church be unified and intact? You see, typically we notice the big issues, the big divisions that hurt the church. You know, if, if someone's in your living room swinging an axe indoors, you're like, that's a red flag. We should do something about that, right? Um, but the little bites that are out of the immediate view, 
We often let those things rise. So to consider grumbling, I want to turn to Philippians 2. And Paul, in Philippians 2, is addressing a church that's going through a a tough time. Um, On the outside, if it hasn't hit yet, uh, scholars are a little bit unsure about the timing of it, but persecution is going to be a very real and present reality for them. But that's on the outside. They can't control that. On the inside, there are some issues that they were facing that they could have some control. They could do something about we know from the letter, uh, at, at the end, there's, there's two prominent uh, women who are leaders. They, they were beefing with one another, likely drawing factions uh, to their sides, causing rifts. Uh, we see in other New Testament communities that factions pop up left and right as people have different convictions, as people follow different leaders. Uh, there's different ethnic prejudices. In James, it talks about how there is a conflict between the rich and the poor. So we, we've got an issue here. And in Philippians 2, what Paul does is he starts the chapter talking about the humility of Jesus, the salvation, the saving example of Jesus. And he says we're supposed to live socially together in light of the example of Jesus. Jesus ranked others above himself, even though he was God, and that should rub off on us. He says so that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We, We don't work for salvation. Right? We don't work to keep our salvation, but we still work. Work is involved in faith, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Trembling, not a casual thing, because he says God is actually at work in us both to will and to work according to his purposes. Here's the anchor text for this morning. Philippians 2, 14, through the first part of verse 16. Paul says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing. So that, and here's the purpose, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. How, in the darkness of a crooked and perverted generation, in the midst of a godless Roman colony, was this weary band of Christians to shine like stars, to be dubbed as faultless blameless and pure? Would they shine like stars by being charming, like well-adjusted socially, affluent, patriotic, popular? None of the above. Paul says that they will shine only when in everything they refrain from grumbling and its trusty sidekick arguing. So what is grumbling? I'll give you a definition. I cooked it up, but I stole a lot from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, just in case you want to know. Grumble. What does that mean? Well, to grumble means to cast doubt or express displeasure in unjustified ways, secret murmurings and complaints against God, leaders, or fellow believers. And these grumbles arise from pride, and they lead to disunity. So kind of like, there's kind of a practical, like a grumble is just a noise, right? Um, often a low, indistinct sound, a whine, a murmur. Uh, it means to fuss. It means to gripe. It means to groan. When you put words to it, it becomes Twitter, right? What it means is we subtly make public issues and concerns that are either non-issues, they're very small, or if they're real issues, they should be dealt with head-on with robust conversation where we would lean in. And like bites from termites, each grumble does a little bit of damage, just a little bit, just a small dispensary of doubt. 
but usually you only see the damage of this well after the fact, because by themselves, each one is not overly disruptive. They're easy to miss. But the summing effect is the telltale signs of eroding relationships, disintegrating teachability, increasing suspicion, and a slowness to trust. Now, it's related uh, to, to gossip. I think grumbling and gossip would see one another at a family reunion. Um, but gossip is where you directly complain. It's very clear about someone that's not present. They can't share their side of the story. There's no volley. There's no defense involved. But it's less direct than that. Sometimes it's scouched in, couched in scoffing or humor. Just a little, a little dig. Just a passing comment. Because like termites, right, grumbling thrives when it's under the radar. Right? It's a little, it's not a conversation, but... Church isn't what it used to be. Or so-and-so really likes to talk about that topic. Just a little bit of an undercut. You know, I'm not really saying they're an idiot and they're not credible, but I just want to pull out just a few little pieces underneath them. Or I hear the youngers scoff at the olders. Okay, boomer, right? So I'm an elder millennial. I'm kind of caught in the middle where older people think I'm young. And the young people think I'm old, so I hear it all. You know, and the, the olders kind of self-righteously are like, what is it with young people these days? <laughs> they complain too much. And I'm like, oh, like what you're doing right now? Anyways. <laughs> Instead of nitpicking, uh, either because we're too irritated by inconsequential stuff or, or because we're not addressing important things head on and having a, a discussion with our beloved family member, uh, we often take the road commonly traveled, huddling up in shadowy pockets of discontent, and the, mites, the bites begin to multiply, rot in the floorboards, support beams go down. Here's my hot take for today. I think grumbling, more so than salacious gossip, which we actually notice, right? Sometimes that, that will send up a flag. Grumbling is the most surefire way to make pride and disunity go viral. Grumbling is the threat. It's sneakier. So that's grumbling. Let's unpack it and think a little bit more about how God feels about it. We'll let God speak into the matter. James 5 says, don't grumble against one another. Okay? Grumbling is different than just this vacuous, oh, I've had a tough day. Grumbling is relational. It's against someone. Right? We're supposed to be for one another. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Grumbling warrants God's disapproval and judgment. It eats away at our relationships, and God takes that seriously. He personally stands by attending to grumbling, to judge it. Uh, let's up the ante a little bit. Jude. When Jude speaks about the doom, the, the hell, okay, hell, awaiting false prophets, he describes their traits like this. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. One indicator of sin is when we have an unhealthy quest to find fault in others, to accuse them, to insinuate, to denounce them. It's so easy to nitpick and to complain about perceived or actual mistakes. 
It's not about building understanding. It's not about leaning in to expand the truth. Those things are necessary. Those are like home repair projects, right? We need to do that sometimes. But these are the little bites that erode the building. Uh, If you pay attention to Riv's social media posts that our communications team works to put out, uh, you might notice from time to time, if you pay attention, that uh, there's some trolling comments. Like, they're, they're not the Riverview faithful, but people like hop on a church website just to jab little digs, little insinuations, trying to gaslight or, or project with all sorts of unfounded crazy, not seeking information. That's a healthy thing. But insecure questions that are actually not questions, they're questioning in order to bait people into arguments, grumbling, fault-finding. I think it's worth pointing out that to some effect, grumbling uh, involves discontent with God himself. In the Old Testament, after God delivered Israel from slavery in, in Egypt, they grew impatient. They didn't want to cooperate with God's plan to bless them. How it was rolling out, they would want it to go differently, so they grumbled. Like, I'd rather be back there where, you know, I, yeah, I was under the, the heel of Pharaoh, but I had a warm meal. They became envious, afraid dissatisfied and filled with unbelief. That is the bedrock. That is the fodder that we use before we grumble. So in Exodus and Numbers, it records well over a dozen instances of the people grumbling. They complain about the food. They complain about the water. They complain about their leaders. They complain about the difficulties and the challenges of going into the promised land. Those people are big, right? They have these complaints. They incessantly are unloading their grief on Moses and Aaron to the point where it's wearing them out. Numbers, God gets so fed up that he strikes a bunch of them dead. It's in the Bible. There it is. Because the complaints were ultimately a form of rebellion against himself. It wasn't ultimately about food and water or leaders or or, or the mission. God was providing all of those things, even if they were imperfect. Their corrupt hearts were ultimately insulting the one who was providing for them and was in control. So in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul is challenging a very dysfunctional Greek church, his confrontation references those things from Israel, the things that were going wrong with Israel, as negative examples to learn from, verses 10 through 12. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. If you think you stand, if I think I stand with clean hands and a pure heart before God, I need to be careful. You need to be careful. Grumbling is so serious that God sent a destroying angel to snuff it out. And what's sobering is that grumbling isn't just something that belongs to one generation or era across time something that's natural to all people everywhere. So I think it's helpful for us just to, just to slow down here, kind of put it in park and, and like look around a little bit and say, hey, why do we do this in the first place? Why do we grumble? Three quick thoughts. One, stressors. Like, to no fault of our own. Like, we're stressed. Life is hard. And I, I want us to be a little bit compassionate as we think about this. Uh, life is hard. Faith is hard. Change is hard. When it doesn't change, stagnation is hard. Sin and relational issues, misunderstandings, those are hard. 
people can be perplexing. Our thinking and our emotional resources are limited, right? Uh, Contrary uh, to the wisdom of the motivational poster, God gives us more than we can handle. He does. I'm sorry, the cat that's hanging there on the branch is not always the most reliable source. God doesn't give us more than he can handle, but he gives us more than, than we can handle. And the question is, then, how do we respond to the more than we can handle? In faith or in unbelief? So that's one reason. Stressors, right? Secondly, there is something that is on us. Pride. We think we know best. Whether we're simply being discontent, whether we're rejecting discipline, um, you know, when we lead, um, it's easy to grouch about those that we're leading as if we expected something different. Like, that's exactly what I signed up for, you signed up for, right? So we, we, we grouch, and what that means is you think you're too good to be a servant. You think you're too good to meet somebody right where they're at. Or what about when we follow, we grouch when leaders push our stubborn patterns of thinking. We, we, we don't want to be corrected. We want to keep going. Pride is, an, is a factor here. But ultimately, I think it comes down to disbelief, to unbelief. We fail to remember that God is in control. We lose a sense of his sovereign guidance, that his purposes are at play. When we feel this despair, we grumble. So let's audit ourselves just for a moment, given these temptations, the real stressors that are not our fault, the pride and the disbelief that's part of our, our DNA. Uh, and let's check ourselves because like Israel, churches can become hotbeds of criticism and unbelief. Uh, years back, I, I did a seminary class, and at the end of the semester, the, the prof invited a panel of, of seasoned pastors to come in, and we did some Q&A. And towards the end, he said, hey, is there anything else you want these, these, these young people to know? And uh, what do you want them to know about the church? And one older, wise gentleman said, well, y'all want to be shepherds, do you? You should know a thing or two about sheep. Quite literally, sheep bite. We think about them as really sweet creatures, but when they're afraid and when they're confused, they bite. They will bite each other, and they will bite you. And I have found that to be true. And that brought to mind the many times where I gripe, I murmur, I do that. I mean, a lot of this, like, me talking today is kind of like getting hygiene advice from a leper. So it takes one to know one, right? Instead of letting myself be challenged, I scoff. Um, and this brings to mind the little passing criticisms that, that, that I hear. The thing is, these, these little gripes, these little nips, um, I'm mixing metaphors, by the way. You don't need to, I know, I know that I am. You can just, anyways. They're not overly extreme. It's not the raccoons fighting up in the attic, right? They're just little bites. There's not a great odor, but there's a sunning effect. That as they bite, they begin to feed, they begin to multiply, and that summing effect adds up to the point where the structure is compromised. The floorboards become weak. And if unchecked, the house can collapse. Canadian pastor Tim Challies says this. Long quote, but a good one. As Christians, we are responsible to maintain the unity of our local churches. And to do that, we need to protect our relationships with our brothers and sisters. As long as sin remains in us, conflict will remain in the church. Though it is unfortunate, 
it is also inevitable. There will be times when we disagree with each other. There will be times when we need to confront other people for their sinful actions or attitudes or to dispute with them, to contend for the truth and to guard the gospel. But both must be handled with grace and love. Both must be seen as opportunities to further unity rather than to further disrupt it. Both must be seen as threats to our calling to shine as lights in the dark and needy world. So the subject matter I know that I'm tempted to complain about is the stuff that challenges me, that stresses me, right? This is the thing that, uh, that we always pop up. We have to deal with it. It's hardship. And so I think for us, oftentimes, it's things like family. We have a lot of proximity, the choices they make, whether it's a sinful thing, whether it's the irritations they have, how we're rubbed wrong. But rather than pray for it all, let some of it go. And then engage rightly. We, we usually sit there and stew for a while and then go off and gripe. That impacts our relationships. What about our res- responsibilities? When things don't seem fair, I know for me, when I feel unproductive and I feel like my, my tires are spinning, we can feel overwhelmed and helpless. And remember, we have a God who's in control, right? Even if you didn't get the to-do, to-do list done, God is in control, And rather than remembering, okay, he's in control, but we have a fallen earth, um, maybe he's even sanctifying me through these challenges, Mm, right? Rather uh, than that, rather than asking for help, for prayer, for advice, rather than that, we hold it in for a bit, or we, we turn into Oscar the Grouch, and we grumble about those who are around us. Grumbling in the wider community, right? Uh, We tend to grumble around fault lines. Right? Especially when ideologies or life experiences kind of come together. There's in-groups and there's out-groups. Uh, in Acts 6, it uh, records either the church is growing. There's different stripes and types of people within the church. And there arose a complaint against, uh, from the Greek Jews against the Hebraic Jews because there was a daily distribution of food that the, the Greek widows were being overlooked. They would pool resources and they would feed people. And it was not being distributed well, but rather than solving the problem, they complained and they fractured. One of the things I think we need to understand is that our very different lives are going to very naturally and understandably produce different self-interests. Different self-interests, that, that makes sense. By itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But because we're sinners, it's not uncommon to see these resentments surface. I mean... Tensions can come from those who prefer change. Even if we begin to change the way they want us to change, you're not changing fast enough, right enough, well enough. And then sometimes we shouldn't change. Some things are timeless and they're time-tested. And and remember, our our preferences are just that. It's easy to over-spiritualize them, but our preferences are just that. Put the shoe on the other foot. Tensions can emerge from those who love tradition, who long for the good old days. We grumble about change, too much change, too fast of it. Even though Ecclesiastes say, uh, says, do not long for the good old days, for that is not wisdom. You don't know whether or not those times were really any better. Uh, singles, families within a church can grumble. Like, why are we doing this? This helps that group at the expense of our group. This stuff comes up. As I mentioned earlier, youngers can complain about olders. Olders can complain, complain about young, older. Uh, olders to youngers, youngers to olders, and those stuck in the middle complain about everybody, right? 
immediately after James speaks about how God resists the proud, the first thing he targets as a symptom of pride is our propensity for criticism. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. Do you know who authored that law? Okay. If you are a judge, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge doesn't have my name written on that name tag, by the way. He is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We need to realize the ugly truth that our judgment, our criticism, and our grumbling stems from sneaky, sneaky pride. Often, without realizing it, what we've done kind of in the cosmic courtroom is we went from like in the gallery looking or just on to what's happening, and then we kind of slip by and we like put on a robe that doesn't really fit us, and then we grab the gavel and we sit up in the judgment seat. When that happens, we're in the wrong chair. You and I are in the wrong chair, and we should be saying, who do I think I am? I am not a judge. You are not a judge. We are actually (laughs) co-defendants in the courtroom hoping for mercy. So how can we move forward? How do we get rid of these termites? How do we shine like stars in a perverse and crooked generation? Four thoughts, list takers, I've got you in mind right now. Four shots. First of all, talk to God. Talk to God about it. First, talk to God. He understands. Right? We're going to find ourselves in difficult situations, but sometimes, if you're like me, (laughs) you forget that you have options and how to deal with it. Right? On one hand, you could have complaints against other people, against God, that are just despair, where you're dismissing his attributes, who he really is, where we're just feeling sorry for ourselves, we're denying his promises, and then we turn and we scoff at his people, or we can have faith-filled cries that acknowledge his attributes, where where, where, where we are mindful that even when it's hard, we have a God who's kind, who's good, who's understanding, who's just. That can change us. We can help remember that our brothers and sisters are in process that they need grace the way we need grace. Uh, There's this beautiful genre of psalms um, called psalms of lament, psalms of grief and complaint, but but it's in faith, where, where the community or individuals express grief and protest before God. Psalm 38 is one of these examples where David positions himself as a a suffering sinner. And his cries are essentially like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm crying out to you. I'm asking you to make it stop. Just a little selection, just a few verses here. He said, Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart races. My strength leaves me. Even the light of my eyes has faded. Get this. This is his relationships with other people. My loved ones and my friends stand back from my affliction. And my relatives stand at a distance. You ever feel like that? Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord, my salvation. One of the things about healthy lament is it helps us realize that God can carry the burden. That he has a strong back. He can do the heavy lifting. It helps us be reminded of the fact that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up on eagle's wings, right? So talk to God about it. Talk to God first. 
Secondly, let some stuff go. (laughs) Sometimes we make mountains out of molehills, right? We overstate our stressors that are actually just a byproduct. It's a negative externality of a fallen world and maybe not a reason to panic. Sometimes there are personality differences. Sometimes we have different convictions. Sometimes what is stressing us is simply an opportunity to be stretched. Sometimes I need to ask the question, what if the things that offend me come from an issue with me? What if I'm insecure, right? What if I'm off base, right? Sometimes I'm the root cause of that and I'm projecting on someone else. Other times, it's not me, it's other people. They're aloof, they're inconsiderate, they're mistaken, they're immature, they haven't grown the way that they could or should. Sometimes, it's on them, it's not on you. So why stress, why worry? It's not worth our time, Proverbs 19. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Think about that. We tend to think about like glorious things as like here's a plaque, here's a raise, here's a standing ovation. <laughs> Proverbs says, if you can overlook an offense, you're doing it right. So we need to let some stuff go. Number three, though, how do we shine like stars? If we're going to engage, engage with teachable humility teachable humility. Sometimes the kindest thing that we can do is we can lean in and engage the challenging stuff. But here's Jesus' warning. As he is talking about not judging one another, and by the way, when he speaks of judgment, he doesn't mean that we still don't have moral assessment. That's not what he's saying. But that we don't sit and presume to judge other people. This is what he says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank that is in your eye. You hypocrite, you you actor. First, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. As I just mentioned, if we take the Bible seriously, sometimes uh, we have issues with other people because they are issues with ourselves. And we see things through a fallen lens and then we operate on that. And so if we're going to engage, is it just a one-sided complaint, right? Or or is it something where we're going back and forth? So let's not just audit one another. Let's audit ourselves as we audit one another. Give you a positive example of this. Um, When I, uh, like once a quarter or so, whenever I preach at Holt, that's the one that goes out live on YouTube and there's just a bigger population and a lot of people hear it, I always get lots more feedback. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's indifferent. Um, But believe it or not, out of the thousands of words I spoke, (laughs) one time it rubbed somebody the wrong way. And the, 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 the life group apparently was having some chatter about it. And so one of the guys in the life group said, hey, He's my pastor. Maybe I should ask him about that. So he sent me an email. I said, hey, could we talk? I said, sure. I gave him a call. We had a wonderful conversation. He said, hey, I've got this question. I've got these concerns. Can we talk about it? I said, sure. So we talked. And then I asked him some questions. And we talked. And I realized, man, if I put in one line of dialogue that said, as I'm saying this, I'm not saying that, that would have been so much more considerate of other people. And I didn't even see it. 
And I said, thank you so much. That was really helpful, uh, you know, removing the blind spots that I don't see unless someone engages. And then he said, thank you so much for doing what you do. And maybe I need to look at some of my inputs and maybe where I'm getting my information from. And that day I felt like I gained a brother. It's like, I'm praying for you, man. I'm like, hey, I'm praying for you. So much goodwill. He leaned in. That was a little uh, uh, home, you know, repair project. No termites up in that. So engage if you're going to engage with teachable humility. Fourthly, finally, most importantly, look to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. When it says in Philippians, preceding these, these verses, when it says hold on to the word, it doesn't just mean hold on to data and cold information. It involves that. But he's saying, hold on to God himself. Jesus is the word. He is the word made flesh. We need to cling on to him. See, Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was wrong. People tried to gaslight him, twist his words. Um, But he didn't complain. He didn't grumble. He wasn't full of himself. We do that when we're so full of ourselves, there's not enough room left for God. But he emptied himself. He, He took the form of a servant. He was so obedient that he went to die even a death on the cross. He alone kept the faith. And he died for our sins, some of which are the sins of grumbling. So here's some good news and why, if you're not yet Team Jesus, get there. There, there, There's room on the roster, okay? Those of us who are in Christ, we have deliverance from grumbling, right? We have forgiveness for our own grumbling. It's not like the Old Testament. God is not going to smite us for that. Jesus took that wrath on the cross. It is finished. It's all gone. Right? So this means that we have a hope and we have a future. When people grumble about us and we feel like we're roughed up by that, we have an ever-present help in times of need. And we can cry out to God. He's not going to tire. He's not going to resent us. In James, it says that he gives us wisdom without finding fault. The one who sees it all. He sees the motives. He doesn't have a jacked up lens or a jacked up filter. He doesn't find fault. So I want to end us where we started. Philippians 2. These are Paul's words about humility. And having a humility built on Jesus. And Jesus' humble salvation for us. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for these people. I thank you so much that we can come together, uh, that we get to open up your word, and that you don't find fault, that you love us, that your, your word um, just oozes promises of your favor and your love. I think about you and, and what you've done with, with your word and your words. How much power is in your word that you spoke and the universe came into being? That at your word, 
people rise and fall for eternity. As image bearers, Lord, our words have consequences. Our hearts and our attitudes have consequences, God. So I pray that you, you give us clean, pure, humble hearts. So grateful for who you are. We love you, Lord. We love each other. Help us stumble together. Amen.